Hello, this is Julian Charles of TheMindRenewed.com, podcasting to you as usual from the depths of the Lancashire countryside here in the UK. And it's good to be back. I apologise for the recent lack of regularity with podcasts. That's partly due to general busyness on my part, but uh, also to the fact that I've been having some trouble with my voice of all things over the last several weeks and uh, I've been trying to rest it as much as possible. You may have detected that there was some problem with my voice during the interview with Eric Stacey actually. I was trying to rest it there and I was worried at one stage when I visited our general practitioner because they mentioned in the list of possibilities, um, I don't know where down on the list it was, but uh, the possibility for my vocal soreness could possibly have been the dreaded C word and uh, let me Let me clarify for listeners to the Corbett Report, who are also listeners to the Mind Renewed. No, it wasn't that word. Uh, But after a trip to the consultant, it turns out to be nothing serious at all. So I'm very pleased about that, and I'm gradually getting over it. And I'm hoping to get the Mind Renewed back onto its usual weekly or almost weekly schedule. So this week, in a couple of minutes from now, we'll be hearing the interview with Pastor Dean Good, who is talking about the mission and spirituality of the churches and how this mission and this spirituality have, in some circles, in many circles, but by no means all, of course, have become distorted to such an extent as even perhaps unwittingly to be helping the construction of a new world order. Next week, we shall be again joined by our good friend Dr. Tim Ball, the retired professor of climatology at the University of Winnipeg, and this time the subject will be peer review in science and the ways in which it can sometimes function less as a mechanism for ensuring the publication of quality research and more as a gatekeeping device to protect reigning paradigms from rational criticism. The following week, we shall be speaking to Dr. Duke Pester, who is a professor of English at the University of Wisconsin and also the academic director of Freedom Project Education on the subject of Common Core. In the following week, we'll be joined by the philosopher, the Christian philosopher Max Andrews, for a fascinating look at the mind-bending and uh, strange, though potentially illuminating, world of Molinism which is a philosophical position on God's omniscience and providence that offers potential solutions to a whole host of theological conundrums. So I'm very much looking towards that fascinating conversation. And all of that information is to be found on the schedule page, as I'm now calling it. It was named the message page. It's on the menu tab. Once again, thanks to those of you who produced transcripts of interviews or who are in the process of producing them. I have to say, I'm somewhat overwhelmed by the response. You know, when I first asked, I really didn't expect to get this level of response. I thought there might be you know, one or two transcripts that will come my way, but I'm receiving them much more quickly than I actually have time to proofread them and post them. So I, I, I never thought that I would say this, but may I say, please slow down. <laughs> Don't stop, of course, but slow down a bit. So thanks to Pixie, Michael, Sarah, Iris and Ian for all the hard work that you have done and are continuing to do. It's really very much appreciated. Just before we do get on to today's interview, I thought that I would share with you a little anecdote, and this is to let you know that I have now reached the grand status in the alternative media scene of being accused of being a shill for the first time. Uh, Following my interview with Tom Secker, who is occasionally accused of working for MI5, even though his work regularly points the finger at the intelligence services, I received a comment about that very interview with Tom Secker, suggesting that both Tom and I are shills, and the reason that was given uh, was that Tom had said in the interview that the IRA was responsible for 7-7. 
Well, of course, he didn't say that. What he actually said was if the authorities were going to jump to any conclusion as to who might have been responsible for that event, then in the absence of any evidence, then the obvious group for them to have blamed would have been the IRA, because the IRA, so to speak, had form with respect to events like that. Which makes the fact that they said, this has all the hallmarks of Al-Qaeda look even more suspicious. So he was not saying that the IRA did it. So the person who made this comment didn't even bother to listen to the interview properly. But what I find interesting is that there are some people clearly who, when they hear something, or in this case, they think they hear something that they don't agree with, their reaction isn't to say, oh, well, I think you're wrong for such and such reason, or I just don't agree with you, or perhaps even to say, well, maybe I'm wrong, or perhaps we're both wrong. We both need to go back to the drawing board. But instead to say, I don't like what I'm hearing. I don't like what you're saying. So you're a shill. You're secretly working for the other side. And that does sadden me a bit. I mean, this particular case is funny because, you know, the person didn't even get their facts right. But I think it's sad that some people immediately react in this kind of way to something they don't like when they hear it. And I mention this because I have had a few emails suggesting something similar about one or two of my guests over the time on the podcast. And and while, of course, it's possible that disinformation agents can creep into shows like this without the host being aware, of course that's possible. <laughs> you know, as the philosopher would say, in the broadly logical sense, it's possible. Uh, but I don't think that that should ever be our first reaction when we're challenged by something that we disagree with. Um, unless, of course, it's blatantly obvious. But I can tell you now, if it's blatantly obvious, I wouldn't even post it. So I think we should give people the benefit of the doubt when we hear something that we don't agree with and leave that kind of speculation to the very last place in our reasoning when every other possibility is being pursued. Because... You know, as Tom Secker reminded us in that interview, the effect of Cass Sunstein's cognitive infiltration article is really less about placing real disinformation agents into positions of influence, although that does go on, I'm quite sure, than it is about getting us to be suspicious of each other and doing their work for them without spending a single pound or a single dollar. So that having been said, let me leave you to conclude whether you think I might actually be secretly working for the deep state after all, uh, which of course I hasten to add I'm not, but then again if I was that's what I would say, wouldn't I? As we turn to today's interview which suffers a bit I'm afraid from low quality audio I apologise for that, Pastor Dean did actually go to some effort to set up Skype especially for this interview but I just couldn't make the Skype recorder work just on this particular occasion which is very odd so we had to resort to cell phone or mobile phone as we call them here in the UK uh, which of course tends to be a bit temperamental at times so if you do find it a bit difficult to listen to to start with, do stick with it because the audio does improve as the interview proceeds. So, our interview with Pastor Dean Good. Hello everybody, Julian Charles here of themindrenewed.com, podcasting to you as usual from the depths of the Lancashire countryside here in the UK. Today is the 12th of June 2014 and I am very pleased to welcome to the programme Pastor Dean Good of Grace Church North Olmsted in Ohio. Now, Pastor Good is a graduate of the Master's Seminary in Sun Valley, California, and has been ministering at Grace Church since 2004. And his concern for the ways in which the church is being subtly misled in a whole host of ways to take its eyes off sound biblical teaching 
in favour of some, well, in some cases, an almost exclusively experience-oriented form of spirituality and uh, his concern for forms of mission that are not well-grounded in biblical principles. This has all led him to be interviewed fairly recently by uh, none other than our good friend Dr. Martin Edmund for a series of short video interviews on these important subjects. And I will, of course, include a link to those Vimeo interviews in today's show notes. And it's on these subjects that he kindly joins us today. Pastor Good, thank you very much indeed for agreeing to speak with us on The Mind Renewed. Well, you're welcome, and uh, thank you for, for having me, Julian. It's a great pleasure. Now, as I say, it was your interviews with Dr. Martin Erdman that prompted me really to invite you to come on the program because I thought that many of the things that you had to say in those videos are very much connected with a number of the themes that we've been pursuing on this program. Issues to do with global governance and the ways in which the church has been unfortunately hoodwinked to go along uh, with one world ideology in various ways, which Dr. Edmund spoke about last year on this program, and indeed how new age-like or mystical forms of spirituality have crept into the churches. And I think you make a very convincing case overall that these phenomena are actually related in various ways. So I'm expecting our discussion to be quite wide-ranging, and I'm also expecting that at times we won't agree on every theological way of looking at things, but that's absolutely fine. I think that's the way things should be. We should have these discussions, but uh, no doubt we shall agree far more than we shall ever disagree. I'm, I'm quite sure of that. So let's start, if I may, by asking you to introduce yourself to us a little bit more and I think it would be interesting to find out a bit more about your background, about Grace Church itself, and the kind of ministry that you have there at Grace. Okay, yes, thank you. Um, I was raised in uh, Lancaster County, Pennsylvania, in a Christian home by uh, godly Christian parents. When I, I, I got my degree in, uh, in business administration, I was involved in business for a few years, and uh, at the age of 29, went to seminary. Uh, God led me there to California and uh, and eventually ended up in the ministry here in North Olmsted. And uh, the Lord has really blessed the ministry here. And again, as a pastor, my main role, I believe biblically, is to study, to preach the Word of God. And so most of my time truly through the day is, is spent studying the Word, right? you know, studying from the original languages and studying the text, and then, of course, producing uh, you know, messages that uh, are biblical. And then also uh, spend quite a bit of time also with the people. And it's a small church. We're probably somewhere between 100 and, and 150, I would think, somewhere in that, that range. And it's been a very good experience, and the Lord has blessed our ministry here. The Lord has led some very interesting and unique people to our church, and it's just been a blessing. Uh, but our, our ministry is, is basically founded on the Word of God. I mean, that's that's what defines what we are and what we do. We we want to be biblical more than anything else. So that's our purpose, to proclaim the gospel, you know, the gospel of Christ to the world. Absolutely, yeah. Now, uh, in your conversation that you had with Martin Erdman, the concerns that you expressed about uh, contemporary Christianity and evangelical Christianity as well uh, seem to fall into a couple of main categories which are closely connected. So I just want to break it down into those. The first one I'm calling the mission of the church, 
what Christ intends that mission to be and how perhaps that mission has become distorted. And the second thing, the second category, what I'm calling the spiritual life of the church, what scripture says about that spiritual life and how perhaps contemporary Christians have begun to lose sight of that biblical vision. So let's start with the first one of those, the mission of the church. What is your understanding of the church's mission? And in what ways do you think that Christians have been persuaded to depart from that ideal of mission? Yeah, well, that's um, a very, very important question. And uh, I think, obviously, you know, what defines the mission of the church is Scripture. I mean, uh, the Bible very plainly lays out what the mission of the church is. And I always begin in regard to that with the Great Commission that Jesus gave, most famously or most notably in Matthew chapter 28, where he said to go into the world and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I've commanded you. That's the Great Commission, and that really summarizes what it is that the Church is to be doing. In fact, there's really one command there, and the command is to teach all nations, or to make disciples is the Greek word. And everything around that main verb is somehow related to that. So we are to go into the world, not just Israel anymore, we are to go out into the world, and we are to, first of all, baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And this is obviously referring to evangelizing. We're preaching the gospel to people. Really, the only message that we have to the world is the gospel that Jesus Christ died for our sins, that we are sinners, that we need a Savior, mm. and that we're all going to face the judgment, something that's rehearsed over and over again in the Old and New Testament and that we need a Savior, and that Savior is the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what we're preaching to the world, and to be honest, we have no other message to the world. It is to repent and come out of the world, because the wrath of God is coming. Uh, and then, when people repent and turn to Christ, then they come into the Church, they're part of the Church, and now we're to teach them, to observe whatsoever the Lord has commanded us. Sound doctrine, uh, learning how to put away sin and how to walk in the truth, in a way that's truly pleasing to God, and that's Christ-like. We're being made into the image of Christ. We have the Holy Spirit and so forth. These things are taught, and, and we're to teach them. Now, we're not teaching the world those things, because we're not mm. calling the world to live like us. Uh, we're calling the world to repent and to trust in Christ. Now, that's the mission of the Church. The mission of the Church, fundamentally, is to preach the gospel to the world, and to proclaim the truth and teach the truth to the church. Yes, that's a, a very important to bring out both sides of that, because I mean, it's as, as you say, bringing up Matthew 28 there uh, to teach, but also to make disciples. And uh, this is one of the criticisms that I think is rightly lodged against missions very often, that you do have this preaching that takes place, and then this tent mission will move on to another place and then preach to a whole load of other people and then just move on again. And, and in many cases, there isn't that follow-up where people who have made decisions um, can then be properly discipled in local congregations. So you have to have both of those things there to be carrying out the command that Jesus gave. Yeah, absolutely. And that's actually a very good point. I mean, missions should be about planting and encouraging and, and ministering to local churches, because that's the way in which God works. He works through individual people in the context of the, the local church. All of it takes place through the teaching and the preaching of the Word of God, and that's true both in evangelism and in discipleship, because that's the means by which people are saved. As Peter said, you know, we're born again by the Word of God. You know, faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. 
And then from the standpoint of the church, we're being brought up into maturity through the teaching of the Word of God, as Paul makes plain in so many places, but especially Ephesians chapter 4. The church comes into maturity as it becomes united around the faith, that is the truth that has been revealed uh, by God in the New Testament, that is the truth about Christ. And so that's the function of the local church and the teaching that takes place in the local church. Okay, so that's the the ideal which should be carried out by the church. So could you give us an idea of how you believe that the church has been persuaded to depart from that in various ways? Yeah, well, I think when you realize that the central message of the Bible and of the gospel really is the cross, and the cross is really a message not only that Jesus died for our sins, which is central, obviously, but it's also that in order to be saved and to enter the kingdom, you must go the way of the cross. In other words, you know, Jesus said that if any man will fall after me, he must die to himself, take up his cross, and follow him. In other words, to be born again is actually to die to yourself. Paul said, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. And that's the Christian. Now, the reason I say that is because the temptation always for the Church is to move away from the cross. And oftentimes the way that happens is the Church begins to try to change the world rather than actually preach the Gospel. And I think that's what's happening today. The mission of the Church is increasingly becoming one of social justice, of promoting unity in the world and promoting peace ending world poverty, and these kinds of things. Those things obviously are evils in the world, war and hunger and famine and and whatever. These are obviously evils in the world, but the role of the church is not to confront those evils. That's not biblically the mission of the church. But it's very easy for the church to take on that mission because it is there in front of us. But the, the, the truth is, biblically, we have no other message of the world than to turn from their sin and put their faith in Christ and put their hope not in the, this world getting better, because it's not going to get better, but putting our hope in eternal things. And when Christ returns, he will bring about these things, and he will bring about world peace, and he will end all injustice, and he will end hunger and poverty and all those things. But he will do that. Well, that's not our role as the church, but it's very tempting for the church to take that on. Yeah, I can uh, go along with you to some extent with that. I mean, certainly if one looks at this as a kind of large-scale operation in trying to almost replicate the ultimate vision of uh, the the kingdom of God and say, look, we're going to bring the kingdom of God uh, now by what we do, I can see that that is to be derailed from the, the mission of the church. But, I mean, do you feel that any involvement in social justice uh, goes that way as well? I mean, I'm thinking of somebody like William Wilberforce, let's say, with respect to the slave trade. I mean, would you say that he was wrong to have got involved in that movement and spend, you know, a quarter of a century campaigning for that slave trade to to end, or, or do you think that he was right? I mean, are you talking about that kind of thing, or are you talking about this larger scale operation of trying to bring the kingdom before its due time? Yeah, well, that's a good question, and to be honest with you, I think it's something that the church has always wrestled with. Let me just point out and that, first of all, I do believe that where the love of Christ is in a person's heart, they do have a concern for people, and that concern is not merely for their spiritual well-being. In other words, we do care about people, and we care about the needs of people. And so that has often led to ministries like George Whitfield had a ministry to orphans, and uh, George Mueller, and many throughout church history who are faithful men and women. Uh, We think of Amy Carmichael in India, 
they reached out in this level. And I think that that's good and that's natural out of compassion. But I would say that that is not the same thing as social justice. Social justice is technically trying to bring about some kind of a, a social change that is global or that is a whole culture. And I don't think we're called to that. Now, you mentioned Wilberforce. But can I, yes, Wilberforce, and wouldn't you say that yeah. that, and obviously not global, but wouldn't you say that was the case in trying to change the situation within that cultural context? Well, let me, let me just say, first of all, we're glad for men like Wilberforce and others who fought against slavery, and, and without question, slavery is an evil. There's a difference between Wilberforce taking that on as a politician and the church mm-hmm. taking it on as their mission. I think there is a distinction there. In other words, God does call some men into politics. He calls Christians into every area of life. And so there is that place where men will be involved in, in those, those kinds of things. But I think we have to distinguish between the mission of the church versus how God might use godly men and women in the culture. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the truth is, and I think history bears this out, and I think England, especially the history of England and the, and the history of America, bear this out, that where the gospel goes forward and where the gospel is preached and received by the people, positive things, good things do take place in that culture. But that's a different, it's a different thing than saying that's the mission of the church. You know, I don't know if that, make, if that makes sense. It does, and it reminds me actually of the kind of thing that Martin Lloyd-Jones said. I think it might yeah. have been in his book Preachers and Preaching, or Preaching and Preachers, I can never remember which way the title goes. Um, something along the lines of, you know, if the church goes too much down the social justice route, it can lose sight of preaching the essence of the gospel. But if the essence of the gospel is preached, you end up with social justice as a natural outflowing or a supernatural outflowing of the gospel. He, and he was warning that we shouldn't get that round the wrong way. So that seems yeah. to connect with what you're saying. And I would agree with what Lloyd-Jones is saying there, and I, I have read that same quote or something similar from him recently, and I would agree with that fundamentally. I don't personally like the term social justice, because social justice implies, I think, more of a, a socialistic, Marxist-type paradigm. I think it's simply mercy. I mean, okay. people who are changed by the power of God show mercy. When they see people suffering, they want to do something about it, and they want to relieve that suffering. And I, I don't think that's justice, that's mercy. But that mercy, first and foremost, is a desire to see people come to the knowledge of the truth, because there is no help, ultimately, for any individual apart from the gospel. And we can feed people and help people, but if someone is not born again, they have no eternal hope. The thing that I often say in regard to what's happening in the Church today What's happening is the message is being changed. The gospel is no longer the central message, or at least oftentimes. Oftentimes, the central message now is actually transforming the world. That's not the message of the Church. It was never the message of the apostles. It was never the message of the great Christian preachers throughout the age. The message has always been, repent of your sin, put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, put your hope on things eternal, and look for the blessed hope of our Lord returning, that's always been the message of the Church, and that needs to be the central message. Okay, so my understanding is that you view the Church's tendency to move away from the centrality 
of the New Testament's view of mission that we've just been talking about. You view this as essentially the result of some kind of spiritual deception that's going on and perhaps Christians being not sufficiently well-grounded in Scripture so as to identify that it really is a spiritual deception and resist that deception. So that suggests that you see this possible derailment as, as ultimately stemming from that spiritual source that's opposed to God's purposes, which the New Testament and indeed the Old Testament refer to as Satan or the accuser. So could you explain what your understanding is of Satan's strategy here and what you think his contrary vision for the world might be? My observation is when you consider, okay, when we talk about the mission of the church and what God's accomplishing, he's calling out a people you know, according to the gospel, he's calling out a people for himself, and we call that the kingdom of God. Now, biblically, that's the kingdom of God. To belong to the kingdom of God is to is to be saved, is to uh, be born again, and to receive Christ mm-hmm. as Lord and Savior in this age. But there is also a kingdom uh, that's opposed to that, and it's the kingdom of Satan. Satan is also working toward, or you could say has, a kingdom well, I would I would just put it this way: He is working toward a a one world united kingdom, a kingdom that is united around Him. Thinking back to Isaiah chapter fourteen, you know, the, the great desire of Satan was to actually be glorified and to be sovereign. He sought to set his throne uh, above the stars. He wanted to be sovereign, and he wanted to have the worship and the glory of the creation. And uh, the Bible teaches that Satan has been working towards this goal, and that goal is almost fulfilled at the end of the age, according to Revelation 13, uh, where there is a one-world system, an economic, religious, political system that is centered around uh, the Antichrist, or the beast, as he's called in Revelation 13. And they worship the beast, and they worship the dragon, the dragon being Satan, who, who gave the beast his power. So exactly what Satan's working toward, a one-world system where he is worshipped, and where he is obeyed, and where he's sovereign. And the means by which he is uniting this age and the, the people of the world ultimately is a desire. It stems from the desire in man to overcome the curse that was placed on man at the Garden of Eden when man sinned. And uh, when man sinned and was separated from the presence of God, you know, that's when death entered the world. But when we look at all the evil things around the world, whether it's poverty, hunger, famine, natural disasters, war, all these things are a result of the curse. And man has tried to overcome this curse. In other words, undo all those things, not by repenting of their sin and trusting in the Lord and believing his word, not through faith in Christ. That's how God provided. It's the gospel. But rather, mankind is seeking to do this without God. And I would say this is the leverage that Satan's using to try to unite the world to undo this curse. Ultimately, that curse is summed up in death. And man wants to overcome that without actually submitting to the true and the living and all-powerful and all-good God as revealed in the Bible. And so Satan's if I can put it this way, and this is why I say the church can be unwittingly moved in this direction of bringing about social justice, because that's really what Satan's trying to bring about. You know, he's trying to bring about this ending of the curse without God. Well, that's a very interesting perspective on this, because very often when people think about Satan and what he might be doing in the world, it's very tempting to think that that must be obviously evil, 
obviously objectionable. But if a system is going to be built in which people are going to be persuaded to go along with it, then it's going to have to seem to be a good thing in many ways. And this fits very much with what you're saying here, that this is oh, a kind absolutely. of alternative, very this-worldly yes. kind of kingdom which is in view, and that that will be very, very persuasive to people outside the church, and perhaps, unfortunately, persuasive to people inside as well. You're absolutely right. I think this is a very important point. People that enter this New Age way of thinking and the social justice, I, I have no doubt that many of these people, if not most of them, enter into this with what they would consider good motives. I mean, they are sincerely seeking to do good for the world. But Satan oftentimes, according to Paul in 2 Corinthians 11, comes as an angel of light. Yeah. And he comes, actually, it says in 2 Corinthians 11, that his ministers are ministers of righteousness. So he comes as one who is actually promoting the good of mankind and promoting truth. Mm. And that's the main metaphor for lights in the, in the New Testament. It's light is truth. Uh, so he comes as one proclaiming truth, as trying to bring about the good of man. And that's why it's so deceptive. You know, the, the reason that I believe people are deceived is because they refuse. I think this is one of the most important biblical doctrines. They refuse to believe that man is sinful. And this, I think, is where they go wrong. Because I come to the Word of God, I realize I'm a sinner. I can't do anything good that's pleasing to God. And I humble myself before the Word of God. And I think what happens in the world is man is really convinced that he's good. And so he's going to do all these good things. But he he ends up following the evil one in a kind of an irony. Right. Okay, I want to ask you how this distorted vision that we've been talking about for one world order, this unity with a big U, uh, is actually finding its way into the churches because this um, this worldly vision, let's call it that, this worldly vision for a better world seems to ignore God's essentially spiritual kingdom building that will eventually culminate in the renewal of all things by his power. The Bible talks about the new heavens and the new earth when Christ returns. That's the ultimate uh, vision that we're presented with. But this this worldly vision has, as we've been saying, crept into the church. So what I want to ask you is how has the church been persuaded? How is it being persuaded to go along with this contrary vision? Well, I would argue, first of all, it's come through, to some degree at least, false teaching. And this is something the Bible, Old and New Testament, is always warning about, you know, those who are false teachers who teach things that are not according to the Bible. And uh, I think the Bible teaches mm. that there are some of those who actually do this knowingly. I think the reason that the church is always susceptible to this, and maybe especially in this age is susceptible to this, is because of the worldliness that's in the church. Because as I said, the, the message of the gospel is one of the cross. And the cross is focused on dying to self, and our hope is not here. Our hope is not in this world. When we come to Christ, we are saved, as it says in First Peter 1, you are born again to a living hope. And that hope, he says in First Peter 1, is not here. It's reserved. Our salvation, the glory of our salvation, it actually doesn't come until we die, until Christ returns, until we're resurrected. But the temptation, you see, when the, world, when the church starts focusing on this life, and they put their hope in the things of this world, then they want things to go well here. And so I think it makes them susceptible, it makes the church susceptible to these ideas, because they really, in their heart, their focus is on this life. I noticed in your video 
interview with Martin Erdman, you were tending to point your comments towards the evangelical churches, and, and I want to come on to that in a moment, but I'm just wondering in connection with this particular question we're talking about here, whether you think liberal theology within the churches has actually set the stage for this by finding it difficult to believe in the culmination of all things and this spiritual vision of the kingdom of God and, and thinking that really the only hope that we have is in this world, um, and therefore we need to somehow bring Jesus' teachings into reality in this world as it is and make the world a better place. That does seem to be, some of the more radical uh, liberal theologians seem to be arguing something along those lines. Well, yes, again, I mean, historically, liberal. this is exactly what liberal theology is. I mean, liberal theology, first of all, has taken away the clear understanding of the Word of God. It's attacked the truth of the word and the supernatural nature of the truth at various levels. And the result of that always was, I mean, it was kind of like two sides of the coin. On the one hand, there was the attack upon the supernatural nature of Scripture and the truth and the new birth. But there was on the other side then a great desire to bring about Mm. social justice. And, uh, of course, that was the cry of the liberal church in the late 1800s, early 1900s. And what's happening in the evangelical church today, and I say evangelical, when I say evangelical, historically, it means changing, but historically the evangelical church is a church that has held to the gospel, and held to the truth of the gospel, and the fundamental doctrines that support the gospel, like the deity of Christ, and the inerrancy, and the inspiration of Scripture, and uh, as you mentioned, the second coming of Christ, and of course there are a lot of others, the atonement, and so forth. But what's going on in the evangelical church is basically a repeat in some ways of what's happened with the liberalism in the denominations in the early 1900s, that question. And that, that's interesting because that's not coming from this disbelief in the supernatural, is it? Yeah, that's an interesting point. It is a very interesting question. I mean, it's not identical to what happened in the, in the 1900s, but the result is, is, is the same in a certain sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's an interesting an interesting point you bring up. I think what has happened in this age is actually is a reduction in even interest in theology. I mean, there's not even an interest in doctrine. Doctrine is kind of like something that's assumed. There's no love for doctrine. Mm. Without question, we have, there's a different stage set today than there was 100 years ago in the evangelical church. Yeah, and I'm wondering actually whether that neatly brings us on to the other category that you identified in that previous interview, and that is the spiritual life of the church being subtly changed in various ways. Perhaps this will give us some pointers as, as to why this is happening in, within evangelical circles, um, where Christians have actually allowed really non-biblical, mystical forms of spirituality to infect and over time, increasingly sideline more and more uh, biblically-based forms of spirituality. And uh, you identify this infection, so to speak, as being related to, not caused by, but being related to the New Age movement. Correct. Actually, I want to be quite careful here straight away because uh, we've talked about the New Age a number of times on this particular show. And uh, I need to be clear that the New Age isn't a religion. It's not a philosophy. It's not a movement in the normal way we think about it. And it's important to mention this because as Marilyn Ferguson says in her very important book on the New Age, The Aquarian Conspiracy, it's much more significant than just a religion or a philosophy. It's a worldview. And that worldview finds expression through you know, an interlocking web of cultural factors increasingly in, in the West. And so I think it's much more powerful than just a movement. So having said that, you do identify the New Age or New Age-like mystical 
thinking, mystical spirituality, as characterizing in some way this distortion in the church's spirituality. And I want to ask you about its effects on the church in a moment. First, let me pin down with you what you mean by new age, what you mean by mysticism. So what is it you mean when you say new age? Where did this come from? What would, how would you describe this worldview? Well, I want to answer that question. Can I just say one other thing before we do that? Because I think I want to set yeah. the stage before I say that. I just want to say a word about what the Bible teaches about biblical spirituality. I think that's very important. What the Bible teaches about spirituality, how a Christian, how they grow in Christ, and what is the purpose for their day-to-day life, it is first and foremost, we are being conformed into the image of Christ, Romans 8.29. That's what God has called us to, and that's what God's doing in us. He's making us into the image of Christ, and that means that we're becoming like Christ, not in the sense that we become little gods. He's God, we're not. But in the sense that we are becoming perfected. His love is being perfected in us. His joy, the, the humility that he expressed when he took on flesh, the wisdom of Christ is being accomplished in us. It's holiness, it's purity, sincerity, all these things are being accomplished in us. And it's being accomplished through the Word of God, through understanding the Word of God, trusting the Word of God. Now, that's the biblical paradigm of spirituality. It requires faith in the Word, and it's something He does by His Spirit through the Word of God. Now, that's very important because that's in contrast to the mysticism that you find in the New Age and increasingly in the Church. Yeah. But to come back to your question, and I just sure. can you just repeat the question to make sure that I get the, the right... You want me to define the New Age? Uh, yes, because you use the term New Age, and because there are different ways of looking at that, there's a sort of technical sense of the New Age, and you would expect to see certain very characteristic beliefs and practices. But I didn't get the impression that when I heard you speaking before that you meant the New Age quite in that way. I got the impression you meant more of this worldview approach to things. So could you? Yes, absolutely. Could you tease that apart for us? Yeah, and I, I would emphasize the fact that when I say New Age, I'm not speaking of the narrow sense. Well, I should say includes the narrow sense, but it's much broader than I think what the average person thinks of when they think of the new age. When people think of the new age, uh, they tend to think of people like Marilyn Ferguson or Benjamin Krem or Helen Schuchman's Course in Miracles, Marianne Williamson, and some of these people, again, many of them having shown up on uh, Oprah Winfrey's show, or they think of harmonic convergences in Sedona, Arizona or something. Now, that is an aspect of the new age, without question, but the new age is far more broad than I think what most people think of. And there are a lot of ways to describe it, but it includes people in every imaginable venue in the world, leaders in politics, business, education, arts, science. And it is a worldview, like you say, and it has come up in through the culture in so many different means. But I would say it is fundamentally religious. In fact, I would say in the end, all worldviews are fundamentally religious and that they require certain presuppositions that require faith and, and so forth. But the New Age, historically, is fundamentally an extension of a cult teaching that's been throughout history, that's developed throughout history. It's along the lines of Gnosticism, Freemasonry, Kabbalah, Hermeticism, Alchemy. I mean, all these things, you know, have played a part historically. 
Absolutely. I mean, it's, e- yeah. it's easy. Sorry to interrupt there, but I was just reminded of I, I did at one point look into Rosicrucianism and yeah. that seemed to be a, which of course, very similar, similar to theosophy, very similar. And and actually, when you look at those writings, you, you, you realize how the people who espoused that did actually deliberately go and find all sorts of related. They were things from different times and places that on the surface looked quite different. It looked like they were just picking things at random, but actually they were related in terms of worldview and they were bringing all these things into a single and actually quite impressive coherent a yeah. whole well semi-coherent whole i mean if you if you look at it in any great detail you find that it doesn't actually make any sense yeah. at the heart of it but nevertheless there's a lot about it that seems very coherent and attractive and uh, so it's it's not a this is not some sort of coincidence we're not making this up but many of these diverse influences were brought together in this rosicrucian stroke theosophical uh, culture that you know, of course i think immediately of madame blavatsky and people like that of course in the theosophical movement yeah and, and she is seen basically with the founding of theosophical society is really seen as the beginning of the new age but the roots there go way back and i I would emphasize the fact that many people when they think of a cult they think of uh, maybe a little old lady in the back room mixing up a brew or casting spells the occult is much more than that the occult and occult philosophy has been very developed very intellectual and has been the subject of uh, much thought by very intelligent people throughout the ages. And what they have sought to do in these philosophies is, is, like you say, to unite all things. I mean, it really is bringing about this utopia that I mentioned. It is trying to unite all thought and all religion into one system. That's foundational, and that is religious. Yes, and in many ways very attractive in a, very attractive. a sort of con- conceited, elitist exactly. um, intellectual point of view. I can see why people go for it. <laughs> it's not yeah. it. and, and, and I mean, it really is. It is elitist, and it's in contradiction to Scripture. And I would emphasize that these philosophies, all of them, the goal ultimately is a very mystical goal. It's some form of mysticism where you lose yourself in a mystical state. But you ask what the New Age is. I would say the New Age is fundamentally this. First of all, it is pantheistic and panentheistic, and that is that God is everything or God is in everything. That that idea of God is, I think, fundamental to the New Age. So that really denies, in the end, a personal God or who has revealed himself in a book like the Bible. Um, the New Age is defined by self-actualization. And I think this is what draws people into it because it's perceived benefit to them as an individual. And the idea of self-actualization, ultimately uh, becoming part of the whole and being united to the whole, that's what self-actualization is, ultimately. That self-actualization ultimately looks like mysticism, and that's the second thing that I would say characterizes the New Age. It's mysticism, and mysticism is, I would define it as direct communion with God apart from the rational by definition, it's not rational. It bypasses the rational, or they would probably say supersede the rational. They're not really interested in a theology. They're not interested in a system of truth or a system of doctrine or some, as they call it today, a, a meta-narrative. They're not interested in that because that's rational. They're interested in experience. You mentioned the word God, I noticed, in that sentence there. So do you actually think this is an... You're talking about the New Age here. So is that a non-rational, mystical experience of God in the sense that we think of God? I would just mention it this way. I mean, in a sense, they use the term, but really, when you get down to it, there is no rational content to God. God is everything. 
you know, it's the super conscious. It's complete unity of all things in some mystical state. That's God. God is not a person. They will use the term. I mean, yeah, we can say in the New Age, you can say that you're God, but quite frankly, you can say the chipmunk's God. Everybody's God. Everything's God. So therefore, it's, it's rather surprising to hear you say that you, you feel that these kinds of ideas in some way have actually found their way into the church, if in fact it's about a mystical experience that is not of God, but a mystical experience that is of the whole, of the pantheistic whole. So how, how do you feel these ideas have managed to creep into the church? Well, before I answer that, that's a good question. And mysticism is, the main, is I think, one of the main issues. But let me just briefly give you the other things in regard to these concepts that define the New Age. And we'll come back to that, because I, I do want, I, that is an important question. Sure. But I, but I would add three things just briefly. I think the other one is, is unity. It's uh, self-actualization, mysticism, and those things, that mystical self-actualization results in unity, because you have a unity of experience, and that's the unity they're looking for. It's not technically a unity around some body of truth or something you hold to doctrinally. It's a unity that is simply around the fact that we are all part of the same world, we're all brothers in the human race, the brotherhood of all mankind, and ultimately a unity that's not just limited to human beings, but all of creation, well, what they would call the world, the universe, it's monism. And then the fourth thing I would say is evolution, which they would view this, we're in this process as a species that's ultimately moving towards this it's not just self-actualization of the individual, but everybody in the universe comes to this state of self-actualization, and we're evolving to this point, what Deschardins called the, uh, the omega point. That's just one example. It was the, uh, the goal of neoplatonism. And, and I think that idea of we're evolving as a species, it would include transhumanism. But then the, the last thing that I would just add, which has kind of already been mentioned, but I think it's important, a very important understanding of the New Age is to realize that it is a cult. In other words, it actually involves supernatural experiences with what well, they would call spirit guides or something like that. I would say demons, but it's involving demonic activity. It's involving supernatural things. It is a cult. It ultimately, the kinds of things that result are a cult. So, yes. go back to your, your question regarding mysticism. Indeed, I will return to that. You mentioned in the list of things there, which I think will actually connect to the next question, maybe in some ways, you mentioned a churchman in one of the things you said there. You mentioned Pierre-Terre de Chardin and his Omega Point. And I have to say that when I read one or two things, a couple of books by Terre de Chardin, probably about 20 years ago, I was actually quite struck by how similar his basic thought seemed to be to theosophical thinking. And yet this is a, a churchman. I thought this was quite incredible, actually. Well, um, well, do you he, want to comment on that? Well, well, he is considered the father of the New Age. He's often called that. And what he's teaching is fundamentally the same thing. Again, this is an example of how terminology can be Christianized, but it's the same thing. You know, I mean, he is a Jesuit, he's uh, a French a French Jesuit, or was, I should say. Of course, he, he's not living anymore, but that's an example of what we're talking about, how it actually is coming through. Organizations mm. actually aren't technically New Age. I mean, they, no. wouldn't, they wouldn't in any way say that they are. I don't think technically 
Rome necessarily endorsed what Chardin wrote, but certainly he was a Jesuit. Yeah, and it's interesting. He, he did actually invent some terminology to describe the new, what well, supposedly new ideas that he had. But, uh, but of course, he did use a lot of the verbiage of standard Christianity. And I think a lot of people looking at it would, would think, oh, well, therefore, he's quite legitimate because he uses these words, you know, Jesus and salvation and the like. They might balk at a word like newosphere or, <laughs> right, yeah. or, or omega point. But, but, but nevertheless, there are sufficient, sufficient of these nice, fluffy Christian words for people to think, I think many people to think, oh, well, you know, and see his dog collar and the like, I think, oh, that's fine. And that's, I think, a very dangerous situation because if you go along that line without actually checking carefully what he's saying against the scriptures, well, you can let anything through the door that way. Correct. And I would say that that, again, is a deception on Satan's part. There is a redefinition of terms that goes on. And I think that it is confusing to people. And you ask how these things enter into the church. One way, one strategy that has been used not just in this age, by the way, I mean, it's happened throughout history, but basically terminology that is biblical is emptied of its biblical content and replaced with, you know, non-biblical and, and maybe even new age type definition. And, and it's happened with salvation and regeneration. Maybe the most common one is kingdom of God, certainly justice. These concepts are, are emptied of their biblical meaning and they're given meaning that's consistent with Satan's goal, which is a one-world system. So they, they speak of the salvation, not of the individual, so much as the, mm. as the salvation of the, of the whole, of the, of the society. And this is, this is why it's coming back, I suppose, to one of the things we were saying very early in the show, and that is that doctrine is actually very important. You know, if you're not having doctrinal discussions within your church and between churches, then you're saying that doesn't matter. And then these terms, which are rather free-flowing, can be redefined by anybody if you're not pinning them down in any way. And one of the things that I'm very concerned about the ecumenical movement, although, of course, it has done good by fostering understanding between different traditions, nevertheless, if you take that to an extreme position, it can mean that you no longer talk about doctrinal distinctives within denominations. And to many people, that would seem like a good thing. Why should you talk about your strange doctrinal distinctives but if you're not, if you're never actually talking about these matters of definition, then everything can become so free-flowing that in the end, I think the gospel itself could be jettisoned. Yeah, well, absolutely. And I would say what we have is the truth. We have been saved out of darkness into light, and that light is truth. And Paul said to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4, he said, take heed unto yourself and unto the doctrine. Continue in this. For in doing this, thou shalt both save thyself and them that hear thee. And we're warned over and over again about the fact that there's coming a time, you know, when people won't endure sound doctrine. No, and we need to translate that word as well, don't we? Because this is one of the techniques to get people not to listen to this, is to say, well, doctrine is a dirty word. Well, it just means teaching, doesn't it? That's, that's basically what it means. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's teaching, but it's not just any teaching, obviously. It's the teaching of the Word of God. It's not the philosophies of men, as we're warned by Paul and Colossians, not to follow the philosophies of men and be drawn away from Christ, but it's the doctrine as taught by the apostles and by Christ in the Gospels, or in the, in the New Testament. It's the written truth. Mm. That is foundational. And so we need to understand who Christ is and what he did, particularly on the cross, and the nature of God, and the nature of sin, and the nature of man, and the nature of the future. What is in the future? All of these things we have to understand, not according to men's philosophies, but according to the only foundation that we have, which is what God has said. And I, I like to point out to people that as human beings, you know, the only thing we have to rest on 
ultimately is what God has revealed to us in the Word of God. That's the only way that we, and I say this as a human race, that we can truly know anything. Is if a good, all-knowing, unchanging God reveals truth to us. That's the only way that we can know anything for certain. And I think philosophy, historically, I mean, we've come to the point where I think the world sees it. There is no foundation for knowledge. I think that's why people are being increasingly led into mysticism. But I emphasize the fact that we were not created to be independent in regard to knowledge. We're not like God. We don't have knowledge in and of ourselves. We were created to be dependent. Yes, a very interesting point. And I was reminded there of something that was foundational to Stanley Yaki's writing, the philosopher of science, who was going on and on and on saying, you know, that modern science actually was born out of a Christian matrix because these scientists lived in a culture where it was believed that if you were doing science, you were actually finding out something true about the world. They were, they were not held within this kind of illusion worldview where you were just sort of finding out about your, your illusion that you were living in. No, they, they actually did believe there was a real world there. So it was a foundation for knowledge that actually brought about, made possible the kind of uh, scientific advancements that we see in, in the modern world. So that I'm, I'm just backing up what you said yeah. there about this foundation for knowledge just within the world of science but of course it's broader than that how, how we can know anything that we actually know that we know things is because we have a creator who's created a rational universe and we're part of that correct and we emphasize as christians obviously that science is very important and has a, a very important place in our world but it is not a religion and today it's becoming a religion or actually it is a religion it's for many people it's the ground of knowledge and to mm. be honest with you, it doesn't have a there is no ground apart from what God would reveal to us. I mean, that's the ground. I think it's very important because I think that sets the stage for the mysticism that's coming into the world because philosophically, I think we've come to this place where we can't know truth on ourselves, of ourselves. We can't. People end up, they end up in irrational mysticism because they can't make sense of the world. And the reason is they don't have the foundation. They reject the only foundation. Well, if I can put it this way, that's true. It is true. And that is the word of God. So I, I want to come back to that question that I had asked earlier on, but I, perhaps I, I asked it too early, and so we've discussed other things. And um, that was, th I think this is the most controversial part of your thesis. I think I think it's the most intriguing part, actually. And, and if, if it's true, what you're saying, I think it's extremely serious. We need to take this very, very seriously. This is your contention that the church itself is becoming a kind of vehicle for new age-like beliefs, which we've just been talking about, not the new age, but mystical kinds of beliefs. And so, especially in connection with this changed view of mission that you were talking about before, it's in danger of becoming something of an ally of this one world system, or at least the construction, the gradual construction of this one world system. And I think it's probably, if this is true, it's becoming an ally unwittingly, but nevertheless, this is your contention. Um, so could you explain to us what forms this mysticism is taking in the churches and how this is actually coming about? Yeah, well, that's a, a very uh, complex, <laughs> it is a complex it, it, it is, uh, issue. It is. I would begin by pointing out that Satan has oftentimes sought to incorporate the church into his program. In other words, there are two ways that he can oppose the church. One is to seek to destroy it and actually persecute it and kill believers and so forth, which he has done throughout history. But I would say he's also very successfully oftentimes throughout the history of the church really infiltrated it in a sense 
and actually has changed its direction and its spirituality in a way that is consistent with his own paradigm. And, and I think that's kind of what's happening. In a general way, our culture, I say this as an American, I mean, I don't know exactly what's going on everywhere else, but I know a little bit better what's going on in America. Our culture is really being immersed, I would almost say has been immersed into occultism. And there's a certain blindness to this. I'm amazed that even Christians, how they, they don't see this. I've often pointed out to people that I could walk through a, a local bookstore here, a Barnes and Nobles or someplace, and, and you can find occult type things throughout the bookstore. I mean, it's things you wouldn't have found 20 years ago in the bookstore. I mean, you find books on the Kabbalah, you find the Kabbalah itself. You find uh, books on every imaginable, not just in the New Age section, but throughout. And there is this immersion. You see it in the movies, in the media, uh, everywhere. And that there's a parallel thing that has happened in the church, and that is that the church has taken on similar concepts. Unwittingly, in the sense that most people don't know where these ideas are from or even what they are. And I think that that is the deceiving part. You say, how has it come into the church? This is just a matter of observation. You know, when you see the things that are happening in the church, they're completely parallel to what's going on in the world. Uh, So, for example, the kinds of things that we're seeing in the church are church services are actually turning into rock concerts. We have an influx, an amazing influx into the church of psychological theory, which is often very consistent with New Age thinking. We have people doing Christian yoga. We have people doing all kinds of mystical practices like prayer labyrinths and so forth uh, that are coming in, again, at, at all kinds of levels are coming into the church. These things are coming in the name of Christ, but they're not. Christian and they're not biblical. I, I, I think a, 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 one example that comes to my mind is the idea of visualization, which is being promoted within the church. And most people that do that don't realize. I mean, they're, they're taught to visualize Christ and visualize that Christ come and speaks to you and so forth. And most people that do that don't realize that that's an occult technique. You know, that's exactly what the occult teaches you to do, how to tell you meet spirit guides what's going on in the health, wealth, and prosperity world where they're saying that their words have power and they are to bring about their vision of, I mean, that's a cult. That's magic. It's not even hidden. It's not, in fact, I approached a guy some years ago who was the pastor of a church and he was teaching some of these things. And I confronted him. I told him, I said, you realize what you're teaching is actually the principles that are found in the occult. And I was amazed at his response. He said, yes, I know. (laughs) Right, okay. It is. Mm. We had Robert Bowman on last year talking about this very same thing and and, uh, saying how it's extremely close to occult thinking, where you can actually, within this kind of teaching, speak a word, and somehow that word has, well, what can one call it, the magical power to bring things about? This is so different from humbly asking God, petitioning God for for things to happen, and then it's up to the person of God to choose whether he... He wants to answer that prayer in whichever way he wants to answer it. This is this is not teaching this at all. It's, as you say, giving the power to the person who makes the utterance, which, of course, brings back thoughts straight away of speaking in Genesis, <laughs> you know, where God speaks and the world is created. This seems verging on blasphemy, really. You're absolutely right. In fact, uh, that's a very good point. You are, you at that point, man is, is taking the place of God. And that's what the New Age is, right? I mean, that's what occultism is. It's man being God. Yeah, yeah, And that's exactly what's happening. And I would say that these things are the antithesis 
of the gospel. They're the antithesis of the way of the cross. They're the antithesis of what the New Testament teaches. It's not to say that our words aren't important, and we are going to be judged for our words, but they don't have magical power. No, and you're right. It is the antithesis of the, of the cross, isn't it? If you're if you're using your magical words to say, I'm going to pray now and have a BMW and a huge house, then well, that is the antithesis of the cross. You're not Absolutely. picking up your cross in your daily life and, and, and dying to self. You're actually trying to support self as much as you possibly can. Can I uh, come back to, you said something about rock concerts. The way I would look at this is the way that the music is being used. And I, I personally feel very uncomfortable in certain situations like the way you have extremely loud music and it's used, perhaps only a few words are used, and it has a kind of mantra kind of quality and as if the congregation is being invited not to use their minds but somehow to come out of their minds and enter a kind of altered state. And this, this is the impression I get. Whereas rock music in itself, I think, is morally neutral. Is, is that the kind of thing you mean? Well... I would say, and not to go into the the whole discussion, but I I would say that rock music has a moral quality. Well, I would mm-hmm. say generally music has a moral quality. I think there is a good music and there is a bad music. It's not necessarily related okay. to whether or not it's Christian per se, sure. but but I would say that rock music does produce, or, or it's very consistent with mysticism. It, it it produces an experience. But wouldn't that be the way it's used? I don't want to get into a big conversation about this, but I could listen to a rock song, three minutes long, doesn't necessarily affect me very much. And I, I think actually there are lots of other kinds of music as well that can produce hypnotic effects. So it's, Yeah, no, that's true. It's not limited to rock music, but I, I would say it's producing, and, and you kind of pointed it out, and, uh, and I think that's exactly right, it is producing a non-rational state. I know in our church, we sing hymns, and we sing them in the traditional way. We sing the hymns, and that's not to condemn that everything else that people are doing. I don't mean it that way, but we we sing hymns because, A, they are generally theologically, and not all of them are, but I mean, they're generally theologically profound. They have a development in them, actually, oftentimes from verse to verse. They require the mind. And the music, I think, should be consistent with that. It should be simple. It should be consistent with the peace of God and the humility and the simplicity of the Christian faith. And I think what's being done in the churches with regard to rock music is it's producing uh, just a complete worldliness. I often say that worship in the Bible is fundamentally this. Worship is submission to God's Word. Worship is bowing down. It's bowing down, not physically so much. It's bowing your mind, your will to God's. That's worship. As you submit to God's will, to his word, that always results in two things, trusting God, trusting his word, and obeying God, obeying his word. And the result of that, when you trust God, when you obey God, you have joy and you praise God. You worship God out of a heart of fullness. And I would say what's going on in the churches in regard to worship is kind of like reversal. It's producing a feeling that's not based on the Word of God, it's not based on trusting the Word, it's not based on obeying the Word, it's based on just, it's being produced. It has nothing to do with godliness or holiness, it's just being produced by music. And I don't think that's the biblical model at all. But I, but I would say it is producing a kind of a mindless, feeling-type Christianity that is dangerous. It, it makes us especially susceptible yeah. to what we're talking about. Yes, okay, that that makes complete sense. I think we do slightly differ in that I don't actually think that music has a moral character to it, but that's just but but, but we're not talking about that in very absolute terms there. Well, 
Well, well, if I can make one more point in regard to yeah. music and worship, I, I just observed the fact that, generally speaking, in the New Testament, you know, I mean, when you look at corporate worship in the New Testament, it's fundamentally the teaching of the Word and prayer. And I would say any worship service, no matter what kind of music you use, quite frankly, any worship service that is primarily focused on music is not following the biblical model. As Martin Luther said, the highest form of worship is the preaching of the Word, and I think that's fundamentally true. But where you have a service that is given to you know, yeah, 80% music yeah. and a few minutes there for a little sermonette, that's not the biblical model. Okay, fair enough, yeah. Okay, so we have to move on to this question. How do you see this mystical reinterpretation of Christianity, this mystical version of Christianity, how do you see that connecting with this distorted view of mission, so that that might feed into the one world order in some way. How do you see those two things as connecting? Do they connect? Well, they do connect, without question. The mysticism is the spirituality. That's referring to the spiritual nature, the life of the one who's you know in that mode. And the mission of the church is in regard to what they're actually doing and what their aim is. And I think those two definitely go together because mysticism produces, by its very nature, this unity that is reflected in all of these other things, like trying to end world poverty and bringing about equality economically and bringing about world peace. That's totally consistent with the unity that is produced through this mysticism. In other words, it creates this kind of sense of we're all one and we're all brothers, regardless of what doctrine you hold. And, and the result of that is going to be that you're going to try to bring about a kingdom here on this earth, because that's where their hope is. Mm-hmm. So so um, I'm just trying to play with a, a kind of visual image of this. So we could have a situation where we have, say, a, a, a massive congregation of people. This is just an analogy or a, you know, a picture. Um, a massive congregation of people worshipping with this kind of hypnotic style, whatever it is. And the message that's at the front might just be a couple of minutes long. There's not much to it. It's very lightweight. There's very little in terms of teaching really going on there. And you might have people from all sorts of different denominational backgrounds all in this big congregation. And you might even start perhaps to have people from different backgrounds say a more new agey background a buddhist background or whatever coming into this situation why not because there's very little talk about uh, the, the content of the gospel and in that kind of context then just using this picture i could see how easy it would be then to feed into that situation these distorted views of what the kingdom should be because there's nothing to check it Correct. Now, of course, that, I'm not saying that's going on just like that, but just to use that as a picture to describe what might be going on on a broader scale. What you said is exactly, I think, what's happening. These people are not, and when I say these people, I mean in the churches, they're not discerning, and the, many times they, their, their knowledge of the Bible is very superficial. Their mind isn't being governed by truth. It's being governed by the world, and I would say it's very easily manipulated. And I think that's what's happening. I think the minds of men are being manipulated because these people are just simply blindly following those who are teaching them. And uh, these people put these ideas in their mind and they lead them along and oftentimes in the name of Christ, and they really don't know what's going on. I mean, it says in Second Thessalonians, Paul says that he will give them over, that is God will give them over to a great delusion. And he's talking there about the end of the age, just before Christ returns. He's going to give over, I believe he's talking about the professing church, not the true church, 
because the true church is mentioned right after that passage at the end of chapter 2 in Second Thessalonians, where he says, but you, brethren, are, you're, you're beloved of God, and you're called, and he establishes us, and so forth. But the professing church is actually given over to a great delusion, and it says why. Paul says the reason. The reason is because they did not love the truth, but they loved unrighteousness. And that, I believe, is the state of what's going on. What you're seeing is very simply people who reject the truth. They, they don't. And the reason is because they love this world. That is, I think, the reason that the church is going down this road. But it's being led by people. And I would emphasize the fact that while many people, probably most of them, are totally naive, including many of the teachers, I have no doubt, and I say this biblically, I don't know, it's not because I know the hearts of men, I don't, but I believe biblically that many of these, at least some of them, the teachers and leaders do know exactly what they're doing. They are leading the church into this new world order. It's being used as a vehicle to bring about world peace and to bring about unity. And I think what's happening, really, when you look at the way things are progressing, I kind of look at it as you have, on the one hand, the world, which is being inundated with the occult and occult thinking. And on the other hand, the church is on a kind of a parallel trajectory going in the same direction, using different terminology oftentimes, but actually embracing the same basic concepts. And I think what's going to happen is, Gradually, I think it's already happening, gradually these things are being merged almost imperceptibly because we have in the church increasingly a paradigm of thinking that is completely consistent with the New Age. I mean, when you, when you actually look at what's going on in the health, wealth, prosperity, especially, you, know, you, you have a, a totally experience-based, self-centered spirituality that's totally consistent with what the world is doing. Yes, and I want to point out that this is not something that is new is it because if we look at the new testament we have here in the book of jude um, where it says for certain men whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you they are godless men who change the grace of our god into license for immorality and deny jesus christ our only sovereign and lord and here we have the picture then of people actually creeping in to the congregation and distorting things in well this this does imply Absolutely. they actually knew what they were doing which is what you said a few minutes ago so this is nothing new yeah, and in fact, I would emphasize, I, I just did a study uh, of almost a year and a half long with a, with a group, um, just finishing it up, actually, on the Epistle of Jude, and it's an amazing epistle, oh. because I don't think people realize the significance of what this epistle teaches. What you just mentioned is one of the most important things, where he says, certain men have crept in unawares. That's one word in the Greek, is the idea that someone creeps along aside, and the idea is that it's intentional that someone actually enters the church, pretends, it sounds strange to us, but I think it's true, it pretends to be a believer for the purpose of actually deceiving the church. And then he gives one of the examples that he gives in the epistle, actually it's kind of the center of the epistle, is Balaam. Balaam did this in the Old Testament. He was one like this, who actually knowingly put a stumbling block before the Jewish people in order that they would be cursed so that he could gain financially. And that's, I believe, what these men are doing. They're going headlong in the same air that Balaam went into, it says. 
And um, Paul mentioned in Galatians chapter 2 that there were certain false brethren who had come in for the purpose of spying out our liberty and actually bringing the church into bondage. So I think this is a biblical concept. I think Judas Iscariot is maybe an example, because Judas was kind of like that. He was hidden. No one knew what he was, but he actually betrayed Christ. I think this is a picture in the New Testament. I would say, I would argue that this is the paradigm at the end of the age, just before Christ returns. That actually, the picture there in the epistle of Jude is the idea. Is almost, I've often observed, I think it's interesting what doesn't show up in that epistle. When he says contend for the faith, he doesn't call them to call out these men. He doesn't call them the church discipline of these men. He doesn't call, he doesn't even call you to separate from them per se. Because the idea almost seems to be you can't even identify them. His call at the end of the epistle is summed up in four commands. He says to remember that the Lord, the apostles of our Lord said that these men would come. So remember that this is according to God's sovereignty. He said this would happen. Secondly, he says, keep yourselves in the love of God, building up yourselves in your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit. And then thirdly, he says to have compassion on some and others say with fear. And the idea there, again, reaching out to those who are under their influence. But it's interesting. It's almost like a triage. You know, just hang on for dear life. <laughs> uh, and I think that is the picture at the end of the age. You know, it's from within. Well, my last question to you has got to be, where do we go from here? Because, I mean, if what you're saying is actually the case, that large numbers of Christians across the world are being misdirected, and of course we're not talking about everybody in all the churches by any means, but nevertheless, if this is going on, with the mission of the church being misdirected, the spiritual life of the church being distorted in subtle ways, then, you know, what do you say should be our practical response to this? Well, obviously we can pray about it. That's the first thing we should do, of course. Uh, but beyond that, what do you suggest we do? Yeah, well, that's a very, very important question. And I want to begin by just observing the fact, I think this is very important to understand. And I say this as a pastor, I say this in, in whatever situation I'm in, I my goal is not to, if I can put it this way, it's not to stop the inevitable. God actually said that this was going to happen. So I'm not trying to overturn this because I don't think that's possible. I think God has said this will happen. What I am seeking to do, and I think what every true Christian should seek to do, is first and foremost to make sure that they themselves walk in the truth that they love the truth of the Word of God, that they seek God with all their heart, soul, strength, and mind, that everything they do in life, in everything, they are submitted to the Lord and to His Word, because that's the only one that God guides. That's what it says in Psalm 25, 9, the meek will instruct, the meek will teach His way. It's the humble. That's the one that God guides. That's the one He keeps. And He's our shepherd, right? The Lord is our shepherd. And he leads us in the paths of righteousness. So when we follow him and we submit to his leadership and his lordship, he will always keep us and help us. So we need to make sure that first and foremost, we walk with the Lord humbly before him in his word, seeking him in his word, seeking to obey him, setting our affections not on things here, but things eternal. And then thirdly, reaching out to people, you know, both those who are in the church and outside the church. Our message is not fundamentally, hey, the New Age is coming. Our message is God's judgment is coming on the world, and we need desperately a Savior, and that Savior is the Lord Jesus Christ. And when you turn from your sin and turn to Him, 
He saves you. He gives you a new heart. He gives you eternal life and all these promises that are given in Scripture. That's the message. Within the Church, there needs to be a renewed focus on holiness and on purity and on separation from the world, which is what he calls us to. And when we say separation, I don't mean what is oftentimes historically thought of as separation. Separation is simply separating yourself from the thinking of the world. You're not to be like the world. We're not to love the world. We're not to be like the world. We are to be separate. We're called out by God to be holy. And and when it says holy, first and foremost, it is a holiness that is within. It's in the heart. It's a love for God, a love for truth, a love for purity, righteousness, truth. That's what we're called to. It's not the idea that we're going to change the world. We're not. What we need to do is call people out. Absolutely. Uh, But I wanted to push you just slightly more on this, uh, not least because in uh, two or three weeks from now I'm going to be speaking to a Christian philosopher and it's going to touch on something of this. It would be just interesting to get your response to this because I've had people email me, quite a few people actually express the concern that, well, okay, the Bible says these various things are going to happen towards the end. God knows they're going to happen, so therefore there is nothing we can do about it whatsoever. Now, I do wonder, and I don't know what you think of this thought, I take what you've said what you just said in answer to the question, but do you think there's something to the thought that although these things are going to happen, there is a flexibility within the prophecy? We're not told every detail of what's going to happen. We're only given a kind of flavor of what's going to happen. That's so true. actually, can we, by what we do, perhaps reduce the impact of what might otherwise happen if we just sat back and did nothing? Yeah, well, I would say, first of all, certainly we are not to sit back and do nothing. Mm. I think it's very important to understand, again, this goes back to the, the whole issue of the mission of the Church. Remember in Second Timothy, when Paul was speaking to Timothy, and he told him about perilous times would come, and he goes through and lists all these things, talking about how, how bad it's going to get, and I think he's talking about the Church there, the professing Church. And then he says, I think it's around verse 15, he says, but you continue in those things which you have learned. And he speaks, he goes on to speak about what he was taught from childhood, the scriptures. Mm. And I think that that really is the answer. I mean, you say, what are we to do? I'll tell you what we're to do. We are to continue in the word of God, in the truth. We are to seek to be godly. We are to seek to raise our children to the glory of God. We are to build up the church of Jesus Christ, just like we've been called. We're to occupy until he comes. I think that has to be our focus. We're not saving groups of people. People come into the kingdom of God one person at a time. Mm-hmm. God has, for each of us, he has work for each of us to do. And he has people that he has placed around us that we are to bear testimony to, and we are to seek their salvation and their well-being. And that's really what we're called to do. We're called to be faithful in what God's given us to do. I think we have to be careful when we start thinking in terms of, we're not going to undo, ultimately, what God says is going to happen. But we are called to to call people out of out of the world and into the truth. I mean, I think truly the evangelical church has often been accused of being, you know, looking for the return of Christ and just kind of waiting for the return of Christ. That is what we are to do, but it doesn't mean we're inactive. We are preaching the gospel. You know, I mean, we're building up the church. Sure, sure. And it's very easy, isn't it, looking at these sort of global pressures that are happening, these moves, to be so tempted to be concerned about this so much that you just think globally all the time about it and take your eyes off the local situation, as you say, where people are coming into the kingdom one by one. And that, although we need to be aware of these these larger scale developments, nevertheless, our focus, as you say, should be locally. 
We do. You're absolutely right. I would just say one other thing. As a Christian whose hope is in heaven and in the return of Christ, I don't have fear. Mm. These things that are happening all around can be overwhelming to think about. But in Christ, I'm not afraid of these things because I know what the end is and I know where I know that my salvation is secure in Jesus Christ. And that whatever happens to me here, whatever happens to this world or the nation I live in, I love America. I'm, I do. I love America. I love America's history. But my hope is not in America. And my fear is not the destruction of America. My fear is the loss of eternal life for people. Yes. I'm not afraid for myself because I know where I am. I, I'm in Christ. And I think that's an amazing place to be as a Christian. Indeed. Well, Pastor Good, it has been uh, great speaking to you, actually. You've given us loads and loads of really challenging things to consider with respect to this, Um, thinking of the church itself as being, to some extent, uh, part of the problem. And I think that's always a very difficult thing to hear. That is, you know, the organizational church here. So I very much enjoyed having uh, you on the program and listening to these uh, interesting thoughts that you have, I think very important thoughts that you have. So may I say thank you ever so much for being with us on The Mind Renewed. I've enjoyed it very much. It's my privilege, and again, I thank you for having me. My pleasure.